On this week's brand new Compete Everyday podcast, we talk with Colin Cernigula about what it means to have a culture of excellence and whether you love them or you hate them, what we can learn from the New York Yankees. What's up, Competitor Nation? Jake Thompson here, your Chief Encouragement Officer, and I'm excited you are here for a brand new episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast as we welcome Colin Cernigula to talk about his new book, Culture of Excellence. Now listen, I'm not a Yankees fan, never been a Yankees fan, I somewhat cheered for them over the Red Sox because my best friend is a Yankees fan, but I am a Rangers fan through and through. It breaks my heart sometimes to think about those World Series losses, but the Yankees, man, they got quite a few wins. Whether you love that team or you hate that team, they have had one fascinating culture in sports. They were profiled in the book Captain's Class by Sam Walker, which if you're a fan of sports and leadership, it is a must read. And they talk about what are things that the Yankees do differently. Colin's book is all about the New York Yankees, what they do differently, what makes their culture so special. And the reason I wanted to have Colin on the show is to talk about what are the things that they did that we can implement in our career, in our offices. Whether we're the business owner, whether we're an intern, whether we're somewhere in between as employee, manager, director, like what are things that we can do to help create a culture of excellence in our workplace. If we're going to show up every day, if we're going to clock in, if we're going to do the work, if we're going to be around others, as a leader, as a competitor, our job is to invest in those others. It is to make sure that we can help pull out the best in those around us, whether it's our family, our friends, or our coworkers. And that all starts with having this shared mindset of what it means to be excellent, what it means to pursue greatness, what it means to compete every day. And so there's some takeaway in Colin and I's conversation today that I would love if you took and ran with this month in your work. And even more so, if you would just shoot me an email back, podcast at competeeveryday.com. Tell me something you took away from this conversation. Maybe it was last week's conversation with Anna. Maybe it was one of our bonus episodes this month. But what's one thing you've taken away from the podcast this month and just implemented let me know that this isn't falling on deaf ears. Let me know that you are hearing something in here of value and you're running with it. Maybe you're stuck facing a challenge right now. Maybe there's something going on in the workplace, in life, in your mindset, in your training, and you want us to create an episode to help address that because I assure you this, if you're facing it, you are not the only person facing it and there's probably someone else out there listening to this that is facing the same thing and they are counting on you as a leader to step up and say, hey, I want to hear more on this. I want to hear more on this. I want to see more on this. How can I overcome this? And so if that's you, shoot me an email to podcast at competeeveryday.com with that content, with that question, with that challenge, and let's see how our team can best help address it and help you finish this year strong. The month is ending fast, but it is not over yet. There is still time for you to jump over to CompeteEveryDay.com. Use the code PODCAST to get 15% off anything in the store, including our glow-in-the-dark Until I Stop Breathing shirt. We've got shirts, we've got patches, we've got stickers, we've got tanks. It is my favorite drop of the year until I stop breathing, compete every day, end it on empty. That's right. It is born out of this idea that I'm going to show up every day. I'm going to compete. I'm going to give you all I've got. 
until the grim reaper comes to take me away. And when he comes to take me away, I can tell you I will be nothing but dried up bones. I will be nothing but emptied out. I will have exhausted all of my energies, all of my efforts, all everything I've been given in the pursuit of everything I want and everyone I love. And so if that's you, if you're hearing that and say, that's me too, I'm going to compete every day. I'm going to give everything I got. I'm going to exhaust it all. So when that day comes and death finally comes to get me, there is not a damn thing left to get but some bones because I've used it all for everyone I love and everything I want. That's what inspires me. That's what gets me going. And so if you feel that same way, jump over to CompeteEveryDay.com, grab Until I Stop Breathing, use the code podcast to save 15% off. And then if you post it on Instagram, Facebook, wherever, tag Competitor Nation. Let us know that you're wearing it. We'll be sure to repost it. I love, love seeing all y'all's pictures online. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with me this nine and a half year ride. But I assure you, we are not done yet. We are not slowing down. We are rolling. And speaking of rolling on, let's have some fun talking baseball, cultures, excellence, and the pinstripes with Colin Sinegula. Colin, welcome to the Compete Everyday Podcast. Jake, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Man, uh, what a challenging morning for me getting everything set up and roaming on Zoom. But man, you've been flexible and patient. So I appreciate that today. I know our listeners are in for a treat. Before we dive into your book and and talking about the importance of of cultures and and how we build cultures of excellence, tell everyone a little bit about yourself today and and we'll kind of roll from there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks for, again, the opportunity to chat with you and to tell everybody a little bit about myself. So I guess the first thing, I'm uh, a new father. My daughter was born three weeks ago. So uh, taking on the whole parenthood experience for the first time, that's been so much fun, so exciting, a little tiring here and there, but uh, <laughs> it is it is a lot of fun in, in general. Uh, other, otherwise, uh, I'm married. I live in Uh, North Carolina with my wife, Charlotte, North Carolina, and I am the CEO and founder of the Talent 409 Leadership Academy. The academy started a little over two and a half years ago, has definitely evolved quite a bit since then, but now what we do is primarily work at the high school and collegiate level, and we primarily work with women in athletics, Uh, so whether that's sports teams, sport coaches, we primarily work with women. Uh, it's not to say that we won't work with men, and I'm obviously a male myself, but for the purpose of the academy, the, really the platform is to advance opportunities for women to increase their leadership knowledge and to have opportunities to be in position of influence, not just when they're competing on the field, but also when they transition into life after sports. So that's a quick, a little bit about myself, I guess a little additional context that might help tie it all together is I'm a huge sports junkie. I played baseball, basketball, soccer, I uh, played baseball all the way through college. And then my professional background before I started the academy was in corporate HR and recruiting. And that's really where I developed my passion for the whole cultural development, team building, leadership development, et cetera. Yeah, so let's back up a little bit on that before you launched the leadership group or the leadership academy, excuse me. How, what was kind of the inspiration or spark to kind of go out on your own with something like this? And, and why, honestly, what drew you most to working with women's athletics? 
Yeah, so the initial genesis happened in a scenario much like what you and I are doing right now in a conversational conversation and, and we're interview setting, I guess is probably the better word for it. And so I was recruiting for entry level marketing roles at a startup. I was still living in Syracuse, New York at the time. And so I'm recruiting for these roles, interviewing all these student athletes. And for the most part, and I, I don't know what it is about education these days or what it is about the people who are helping prep these kids for life after sport, but so many of them came into the interview setting and had no idea how to translate what they learned in competition into what they could provide and the value they could provide as an entry-level employee for an organization. Uh, largely, they came into the conversation feeling like they were behind the eight ball because they hadn't interned and they hadn't even worked part-time because all of their time is taken up either working out, traveling, playing, and then being at school and trying to have a social life fit into all of that. So it was really interesting sitting across these interview tables in a non-pandemic world where yep. you know, we're in person and <laughs> we're having these conversations. And, and I know as a former student athlete myself, I know that they have it within them, but I can't force them to say it, obviously. And if there's hiring managers with me and they're not able to articulate it to the hiring managers, and they're not going to get hired for the role, yeah. even at an entry-level position. So that was really, honestly, the, the genesis was sitting across from these candidates in an interview setting. Uh, the whole evolution to working more primarily with women uh, happened over the course of the past year. Uh, really, it started as a result of my own podcast, where I just, I personally was enjoying the conversations that I was having with women more. I felt like they were being more forthcoming. I felt like they were being more honest. Uh, and I felt like my audience, uh, for whatever reason, I'm not entirely sure, but I felt like they were engaging more with those episodes. So it started because of what was happening on the podcast. And then it just turned into you know, working with, especially, you know, baseball and softball, they kind of naturally translate there and uh, just working with some other women's sports teams in the Charlotte area. So it just all kind of naturally happened. I don't know that, I mean, uh, one of the things that really helped make it official was uh, when Kobe Bryant passed away and the work that he was doing to advance the women's game and basketball particularly and how tragic that was for him, his daughter, and everyone else who was on the helicopter that day. And I think that's when I said to my wife, I said, I think I'm going to make this official. Like we're actually going to change the website. We are going to brand it this way. We had been doing it largely for the past six months, just behind the scenes, but we made the full switch after Kobe passed away and uh, just been plugging away in the pandemic world ever since. Let me ask you just out of curiosity, because just naturally starting any business, uh, offering any services, building any business, you, you, you experience pushback, you experience challenges, you experience rejection. It's part of growth. Uh, we have to learn to kind of deal and navigate and overcome that. I would imagine some of the rejections and things that you face would be a little bit different because you are bringing a very male voice into female locker rooms and teams. And so talk to me a little bit about how you, you kind of overcome those challenges, not in, in terms of overpower, but, but offer your perspective of where that value is from that different perspective, not having some of the same experiences that those athletes have had. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head at the end there is that the first thing that I will always, when I'm 
talking either it's a head coach or we're talking to an athletic director, I will say that I know there are just certain things that I will never as a male get to experience and I could never understand it in the same way as a female. So I don't pretend to know that I can relate to some of the specific scenarios and challenges that women face. I think the thing that really helps me from there is, okay, so I set the tone. I'm not going to try to pretend to be this know-it-all and and, uh, not actually know everything. Uh, But then one of the things I do is I'm willing to bring in women resources, people who I have connected with over the course of my my professional career in general, but especially since I started the academy and bring them in as supplemental resources if need be to talk about something specific. And then I think the other thing that is really helpful in overcoming that challenge in, um, you know, the, the coaches or the athletic directors or even the teams, they have to be willing and to, they have to be willing to be accepting of me as a male and, Um, If they're accepting of that and they see me as a champion for them versus someone who's threatening to take their jobs or to suppress even the work that they do, then the relationship can really work. So uh, just being someone who is supportive and I do that on, you know, everything that I do. I mean, we're, we're supporting women, whether that's in my business or in my personal life. And now I have a daughter. So uh, it's, it's really uh, taken full circle in that sense, but Um, Whenever there's challenges and you get rejection, you know, some people just aren't going to want to work with me no matter what. But I think those are some of the key aspects that I use to overcome it. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing that and hopefully some encouragement for those listening of that keep running into rejections. Uh, just how you approach that and how you how you look for those opportunities to add value. Uh, one of the things I'm curious about, just from a, a youth athletic standpoint today, especially as you work with in the field of leadership and, and growth in that in that area, is personal responsibility. And what seems, if you spend enough time on social media, is a overwhelming wave of entitlement uh, and lack of personal responsibility and ownership. And so I'm curious as someone with boots on the ground, what are you seeing uh, and how specifically, if you do see that kind of those same trends, how are y'all addressing it uh, in a way that people seem to respond well so that, you know, parents listening, coaches listening uh, can hopefully just try to implement something in there to help those players, those people that are, that are really avoiding the ownership, the responsibility that comes with being a champion. Yeah, great question. So most often when I get asked about this in a professional setting, the phrase that comes up is millennial entitlement. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's funny to me because I'm a millennial. So uh, it's, it's uh, not unique, I don't think. I think every generation has difficulties connecting with the generation before because things are different. And, uh, but, but you know, everybody is so different these days in terms of the technology aspect and maybe where expectations lie uh, as compared to what they had been in the past. But whenever I have, and to be honest, these conversations happen more at the high school level than they do at the collegiate level. At the collegiate level, and you know this, I mean, those coaches are recruiting players that they want to bring in. So (laughs) if there's, if there's something, you know, from an entitlement perspective or whatever element it is that they don't want, they're not going to bring that person in the good coaches, you know, they'll, they'll stay away from that. But at the high school level, you don't get to be quite as picky. So it can really obviously hinder a team and their growth and 
the culture and, and everything that's involved with that. So what we talk about all the time is really trying to just communicate as much as we can with the student athlete. So it's one thing to, you know, be a coach and be able to teach skills and be able to make up plays and those type of things. But it's another thing if you are struggling to connect with somebody for one reason or another, it's, it's another thing entirely to be able to dive a little bit deeper into that and to take the time that it takes to un- uncover what may be going on. Yeah. Um, you know, and entitlement can come from a number of different reasons. Maybe the kid just doesn't simply know any better. Uh, maybe, maybe they're not even realizing that they're acting entitled because nobody's ever told them before, but you don't know these things unless you're actually asking them, <laughs> trying to have conversations. Some kids, they're going to be receptive to having conversation with a coach that goes a little bit deeper than the surface level things that we see on a daily basis. Some kids, they're going to back away. I mean, you yep. can't fix everybody. That's probably an important thing to note. But uh, when it comes to the entitlement, I always encourage coaches to be that person. You're the adult in the room. Be that person to open up those lines of communication and really see if you can start a dialogue that runs a little bit deeper. And it's, it's amazing when they do that, how often the kid does respond in a positive way and they can start to work through some of those challenges. I, I hesitate to call them issues uh, because I think it, it's, it's, not, it's not that there's something wrong with the kid or even with the coach. Uh, it's just a challenge to overcome. And, you know, it's the whole like Netflix philosophy where uh, Patty McCord, when she was hiring people at Netflix before she started her own consulting firm, she would look for people who wanted to be problem solvers and who saw challenges and wanted to face them and wanted to figure them out versus so many of us see challenges and we see problems and we get scared and we want to run away. So <laughs> that's, that's a conversation with coaches to say, you, know, you can't be the person that gets scared of this situation or that doesn't want to address it, uh, especially if we're talking, I mean, even at 18 years old, but I mean, some of those kids in high school, they're 14 years old. Yeah. They're, they're not developed yet. They, they don't even know who they are in most cases. So. Well, and a uh, lot of them have been taught something and, and assume that that's just how it is. Sure. Like they have that, that idea in their head that this is, this is just how it is. And so uh, when you do that and, and you don't learn a different way, you're going to act as if there's no other way about it. Um, but what I, what I really appreciate from what you say in there that has been echoed many times throughout the show is from coaches. If you can get to a player's heart, you can get to their head. If they know you care, if you invest in that relationship with communicating with them, they'll go above and beyond for you. They'll, they'll learn to do more. And I think that's been prevalent, not only in sports, but you get into offices and lives, you start looking at cultures within teams from a corporation standpoint, people that know their managers care about them, want their best interest at heart, want them to succeed and grow. Like those people work harder and longer for them because they, they're bought in to that. And, and, and it all goes back to a lot of those lessons from sports. So um, I love, I love hearing that. I love it being reinforced for our listeners today as well. Uh, wanting to switch gears, you have a new book that highlights the evil empire. And for those that are not familiar with baseball, I'm talking about the New York Yankees. Uh, and I say that in all jest because my best friend is a diehard Yankees fan. His whole family is. <laughs> pinstripes through and through uh, as a heartbroken Texas Rangers fan uh, I get to laugh and joke that they're just the rich kids on the block and, and everybody <laughs> second fiddle to them but in reality there's some very special things that the Yankees have done 
that to a casual fan, you're looking on the outside and saying, well, they just make everybody be clean cut and have the most money and spend the most money. But not necessarily the case once you kind of look behind the curtain. And so one, I'm curious, I'm assuming you're a diehard fan as well because you were inspired to write a book about the culture of the New York Yankees, but what pushed you over the edge to finally say in pen to paper, I got to get this out? Yeah, absolutely. I am, uh, full disclosure, a Yankees fan. That was probably the <laughs> single hardest aspect of the book was trying not to be too romantic. Uh, about them and trying to be objective and tell the full story and it's funny you mentioned you know, being clean cut and having all the money in the world and that's what makes them good and uh, that's not the the only argument that kind of got me thinking about you know why why do they succeed and really just trying to figure out dig a little bit deeper uh, because <laughs> I mean you look at that now and they're super successful but if you go back 30 years when the story begins in 1989 they're clean cut. They're the pinstripes. They still have the most money, but they are the toxicity of baseball. They are a culture and they are an organization that players large, largely want to stay away from. Uh, and, and they miss out on top name free agents. They have probably, uh, it's the worst record in modern, in the modern era. I think it's 1990 was their worst record since 1968. I mean, we're just talking, you know, pretty, pretty bad period when, so I was born in 1989, just happens to be a coincidence that this is when the story starts. Um, but Not convenient I, I, for your sports fan. <laughs> I know I got, I got spoiled. Like I, I just, I had no chance growing up in New York and yep. the Yankees just starting that dynasty in the late nineties. I had no chance, but it's so funny. My dad, you know, also is a Yankee fan and I was really big about teaching the history of the team. And uh, one of the things that got me thinking about the organization in a little bit more detail was Billy Martin, uh, ironically, who, for those who don't know, was the on-again, off-again manager for the Yankees, also played for the organization back in the 1950s. But uh, he was a, a real hothead character, uh, but it heads a lot with owner George Steinbrenner, uh, and he sadly passed away on Christmas Day of 1989, uh, which is why the story begins there, because I make the argument that his passing indirectly changed the fortunes of the organization in a drastic way. Uh, prior to Martin passing away, as I mentioned, he was on again, off again. Essentially, it was this love-hate relationship between him and George Steinbrenner that every time George could bring him back, he would at the cost of hurting the organization and then they would get on each other's nerves and he would just fire him and Billy would go on some drunken rampage or go manage for another team. And it was just this endless cycle that uh, really tore the team apart from, you know, they went back to back titles in 1977, 1978, George Steinbrenner accomplishes what he sets out to do, restore the organization. And then by 1989, they're a laughing stock in 1990. They have the worst record in baseball Billy Martin dies on Christmas day of 1989 and by August of 1990, George Steinbrenner is suspended indefinitely for the second time in his tenure as owner. So that's really the, the genesis for the story is taking those two really monumental moments in the organization's history and saying, okay, this was a turning point. And what happened in those 30 years since is a lot of good, uh, some bads, uh, some bad times as well. Uh, and the book 
you know, largely just takes that 30 year scope and we tell stories of, you know, these human stories. I mean, the, the Yankees are a baseball team and the Yankee players are baseball players, but this is not your traditional baseball nerdy book. Like if you're looking for stats and you're looking for, did the Yankees win this game or did they win that game? That's not what you're going to find here. You're going to find human stories about people who struggle with a lot of the same things that you and I struggle with on a daily basis. And a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, struggle with on a daily basis in life, in business, and anything else that you can think of. So uh, we, we talk about all these different stories. There's a lot of main characters, you know, managers, owners, some of the big time players that uh, there's just a, a lot of really good examples that they set. Um, but we also talk about the bad as well. I mean, I mentioned the toxicity uh, back when the story starts. Uh, they've had their moments since those dynasty years when they won all those championships where things haven't gone very well either. And uh, they've had to basically reinvent uh, in order to keep pace. Yes, they've always had the most money, uh, but it doesn't matter how much money you have in today's environment if you can't, like, you can't develop players, for example. And developing players is not just physical and you know, making them the Aaron Judges of the world who are huge and can mash balls. Uh, but it's also the, the non-physical traits and helping you know, foreign-born players, for example, understand American laws and what they can do here versus what they could do in their home country, uh, helping them <laughs> uh, obtain social security cards and uh, get money out of an ATM. I mean, these, these things that most Americans would probably take for granted. Yep. And these are things that Major League Baseball players have to figure out when they come over. Uh, and then you have you know the American-born players who... Uh, you know, they struggle with depression. They struggle with the, uh, the pressures of getting traded to New York and having to deal with the media. Uh, so there's just so many stories. And, and I uh, try to make it abundantly clear that uh, although it's a baseball team and they are baseball players, it is not a nerdy baseball book. It is a book about cultural development. It's a book about leadership. And it, I think it's really a book that anyone can learn from whether you're in sports, whether you're in business, whether you're trying to be a better family person, uh, it's, it's really all encompassing. So a couple of questions along those lines. One, I'd love, pick, pick something. What was your favorite chapter in the book, your favorite focal point in the book uh, of where you focused that you just, like this was the one anchor that always lights you up to talk about? Yeah, uh, my favorite chapter in the book, uh, chapter five and six actually, Actually, so it's two chapters. Uh, it's the culture chapter and the player-led team chapters. And both chapters are really focused on the players, uh, whereas the first couple chapters are focused on like executives, the owners, the managers. And then in the middle of the book, we get towards the players. And the player stories are, I think, really powerful because they're the ones in the trenches, right? And, and this is what we talk about. And I'm sure you have conversations around all the time in your line of work with employees who are in the trenches and trying to relate to supervisors and to managers and C-level executives who aren't in the trenches every single day. And uh, so I think the one that story that really stands out to me, uh, there's a whole section on David Cohn, who was a pitcher for the Yankees in the mid to late nineties. Perfect game. Uh, yes. Perfect game in 1999. Um, so not only was he a good pitcher, uh, but he was a de facto spokesperson and a leader uh, for those dynasty teams. Those dynasty teams did not have an official captain. Uh, Derek Jeter wasn't named captain until 2003. 
and uh, Don Mattingly had retired in 1995. So the dynasty years, 96 to 2000, uh, they're operating with no actual captain, which surprises people uh, sometimes when we talk about that. But David Cohn did fill these shoes. And I mean, there's so many stories and I can't go into detail about them all, but I think one that really stands out, uh, there was uh, my favorite player at the time, Chuck Knobloch, uh, was uh, second baseman for the Yankees. And they're in the playoffs in 1998. Late in a game, it's tied. I think it's the 11th inning. And there's a, a bunt situation, and it's a bang-bang play. Long story short, Knobloch blows the play. I won't get into details and try to confuse people who don't know baseball. Uh, but Knobloch blows the play, and to – make matters worse after the game he denied to the media that he had done anything wrong uh, which infuriated them and also uh, made the fans super angry yeah uh, so there was an off day uh, between that game and the next game they were actually traveling to Cleveland and there was a lot of pressure on Knobloch I mean he was coming over from the twins kind of a blockbuster deal had a subpar season uh, but he's on this great team that's setting a record pace for wins. Uh, and they're, you know, now in this position where they're in their first must game uh, they, they've had all year and they need to win the game. And David Cohn is thinking, I can't let this blunder in this last game be the defining moment of the season. We need to fix this now. So they're on the plane. Knobloch's in the back of the plane, just very somber. Definitely understands that he made a mistake. He just probably communicated it wrong to the media. Yeah. So, so Cone, you know, understands this instinctively and goes back to the plane, grabs a beer for Knobloch and for him. They grab a, you know, they're, they're drinking the beer. They're talking. Cone tells him a story about how he made the same mistake. It's, it's a really eerie play. Uh, if, you, if you look it up, just look up David Cohn blunder and then look up Chuck Knobloch blunder. And you look at the two plays and they're very, very similar in context. So Cohn tells him about this mistake that he made when he was with the Mets. They laugh, you know, share, share a laugh at each other's expense. And Cohn gets serious and he's like, you need to end this now. You need to go to the media tomorrow before the game and you need to admit that you made a mistake. If you admit you made a mistake, then you can move on and then we can move on as a team. Knobloch went to the media the next day. He admitted he made a mistake. And, I mean, he was really integral to the rest of that postseason and helping the Yankees win the World Series. He had a huge three-run home run in the World Series. And, I mean, he ended up playing another four years in the Bronx. I mean, who knows what his story would have been like had David Cohn not, mm-hmm. not, not gone to the back of the plane there and had that conversation. It seems so simple, uh, but it, it is so powerful to know that, you know, people deal with that's just a classic example of people deal with denial they don't want to admit they made a mistake and David Cohn saw that and he said hey let me show you that I've made a mistake too and I bounced back you can too here's how we do it we'll do it together personal responsibility and ownership man goes goes so incredibly far you know it's interesting talking about Knobloch uh and, and what I would Here's why I want to bring it up toward the end. And, and this may be mentioned in your book. It may not. But, but Chuck's career ended with the yips for the most part. Am I right on that? He, he kind of forgot how to throw to <laughs> yeah. second. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> in baseball, for those not familiar, the yips are when you essentially just forget how to do the basic drills. Uh, mm-hmm. Rick Ankiel is an incredible example of a, a kid who is a phenomenal pitcher 
got the yips, couldn't throw a strike to save his life, reinvented his career as an outfielder. It happened in Knobloch, which was sad because he had this incredible career. Uh, but mentally, something happens like that. Mm-hmm. You hit roadblocks. We all have them in life. We hit these moments. And then everything kind of derails us. And for a lot of people, they go into that hole. And this year of all years has been a year where it's very convenient to go in that hole. Uh, <laughs> some people listening, they've lost their job. Some people listening have, you know, dealt with uh, all sorts of adversity from a career standpoint. Maybe they launched a new business. This was the year they launched. Whatever the case may be, there are moments that mentally things do not go your way. You can't understand why and people tend to go in a hole. What I enjoy most about team sports is your teammates. It's the memories you have. If you think back on all of your games, I mean, there's games I still remember the wins. I remember some of the beatdowns we were given. But, like, I remember the practices, the jokes, the fun times, the things with teammates, the people that surrounded ourselves with. Talk about, just briefly as we wrap up, the importance of those teammates, not only in the Yankees in the book, but with the teams that you get to work with in real life and and how – you see healthy teams investing in each other, similar to what we just talked about with Cone of, hey, I'm going to challenge you, I'm going to encourage you, but we're going to make sure we get this right because we've got places to go. Um, And so tell us just briefly, what are the things that you recommend in terms of ways our listeners can invest in their teammates to maybe help them come up another level um, or the things they need to start looking for in teammates they should find in life? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. we just, we have to be as a society, this isn't just you know, specific to sports. We, as a society, we have to be better than surface level. It is way too easy to put up the good post on social media and pretend life is all rainbow and sunshine. Uh, but I mean, you know, from working on teams in the past and, and especially student athletes and athletes in general who are part of these close knit groups you cannot operate on a surface level. You cannot operate just at surface level. You have to be able to dive deeper and to understand everybody a little bit more. It doesn't mean that you need to be best friends with everybody on the team, but you need to be able to have deeper conversations. Uh, Maybe that deeper conversation is around a skill. How can you help somebody get better at what they do? Maybe that conversation is around, you know, what you were talking about, a mental block. Uh, there is a moment in, in the book where we talk about Knobloch's mental block and, and errors and uh, everything that he was struggling with. He was, his dad was also struggling uh, dealing with Alzheimer's disease. And Joe Torre took him, who was the manager of the Yankees, took him to the side one day and simply reminded him that he was doing so many other things right and well. And he was on a team that was winning and a team that largely enjoyed being around each other. And that one conversation helped propel Knobloch for like a full season after that. <laughs> it just helped relax him. And it was, it's a super simple conversation. It's just saying like, Hey, I know you're having some difficulties right now and I feel for you and I'm here to help you through them, but here's what you're doing. Well, here's what you're doing. Right. And this is what you're a part of. Like if you can make all those arguments like connect those three things, and that's, that's super powerful, right? Like that's, that's going to make anybody happy. So I think that's probably, you know, as brief as I can put it, it's a, a good way to uh, address if there's, whether it's a mental issue or just challenges in general. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciate that. I, I think 
Uh, we vastly underestimate the power of the word and, and what we can say to someone else and how we can build someone else up. We're, we're quick to remember when trolls online say things and, and get after us. And, and so we realize in those moments how much they, they piss us off or, or make us upset or, or sad or whatever the case may be. But a lot of times we forget the power of us speaking life into others and the importance of finding those people to encourage you, to challenge you and to, to really hold you accountable as well as you them. Colin, man, this is fantastic. Uh, I cannot wait for your book to be released. Uh, actually it's released now as we're recording this, it's still pre-order. Uh, but I'm getting a copy for my best friend, the Yankees fan. Uh, he is a professor of marketing at the University of Ohio. So he is going to be excited about this. Um, but man, tell our listeners where we can get connected with you, uh, with your leadership work, as well as where we can pick up a copy of your book. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the easiest way to connect on social, just search the, uh, the tag at talent409. And we're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. I have a personal Twitter. If you do Colin, my first name, C-O-L-I-N, Talent409, you can connect with me there. DMs are open. Feel free to ask questions. Our website, talent409.com. That's probably where you're going to get the most information on everything all-encompassing. Uh, there's a tab there that has all the order options for the book. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can buy directly from me if you want and support me. I have some cool swag items like stickers and bookmarks that I will send to you and personalize it if you want as well. So uh, if that's enticing enough for anyone, you can certainly order from me right on the site as well. But I uh, would certainly appreciate any support with the book and uh, really appreciate Jake just giving me the opportunity to chat today and uh, use your platform to hopefully help some people with their uh, cultural development. Dude, you bet. And, and I appreciate your time. I know we connected long time back uh, and I had you patiently wait for me as we kind of got some more shows in the queue. So thanks for sticking with us. Uh, looking forward to reading my copy of the book and then giving that copy out, man. Thanks for having time today. Yeah, thank you, Jake. Appreciate it. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of the Compete Everyday Podcast. To get in touch with me or the show, email us at podcast at competeeveryday.com. To join our free Facebook community and get connected with other ambitious leaders working to win their work, their workouts, and their life, be sure to visit us at facebook.com slash groups slash compete every day. Until the next episode, keep competing every single day because your life is worth it.